Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and onward. Somebody say, High Priest. Jesus is our High Priest, offering us what no one else can. What I just shared during our communion time reminds us that Jesus is not only the sacrifice, but he's also the High Priest. Hebrews chapter 8 is where we are now. We're going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is the speaking to the Israelite people. We're learning about how God set them apart to do something amazing and to have a people that would be a culture after his commands. That's why we have the Old Testament. And one of the problems that I realized in this culture as I listen to people walking away from Christianity is they don't understand this big portion of the, old, uh, of the Bible called the Old Testament. Somebody say Old Testament. You see, if I split the Bible according to the Old and New Testament, how many can see the Old Testament's bigger? 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And you can just see by the length there of the books, they're bigger. There's more content there. But if I talk to Christians and I ask them, what was the point of this Old Testament? Just give it to me in a sentence. I'm not going to do it now. I'm tempted to, by the way. Uh, glad that you're here. Always like putting people on the spot. Welcome to a church that makes you feel awkward. You know, they used to, I used to go to these kind of old school churches, and they're like, don't worry, you won't feel uncomfortable here. And I want to say the exact opposite. Be concerned. You may feel uncomfortable here, you know. Um, if I asked a Christian, you know, you to say, summarize it two sentences, Old Testament, go. What would you say? You know, I mean, I think a lot of the culture would just say, God meaning, God mad, God before coffee, you know, Old Testament, weird. They, they, they would summarize it with these terms that wouldn't, wouldn't capture it at all. Put yourself in the, the, the position of Israelite people. Why become a minority and become a cult to the world around you, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, they would look at these guys like a little cult, like a little nation. They're small, you know. Why would you do that to yourself unless there was a specific reason? Now, I'm not saying every religion that's weird and cultish and small is from God. I'm just saying, what is the reason? If you look at Mormonism, what is the reason? It's during the time after the colonies, America's getting built up, Christianity's dying out a little bit, people are starting to look towards economies and urbanization, what we're going to now know as modern cities and all of that. And uh, at that time, what was popular in the world was understanding the Egyptians and what they were about. So it would, it would make sense. A cult would be based on Egyptian hieroglyphic tablets explaining that the Americas were established by other uh, people maybe Jewish people who came over here. That was actually mythology around that time when Joseph Smith received his vision. Everybody go, ah. So that would kind of make sense. He actually got a whole book from an Egyptian hieroglyphic, hieroglyphic, and they put it in the Book of Mormon. It's called the Book of Abraham, and modern-day Egyptologists have had a, quite a joke at looking at it. It has nothing to do with what he says it has to do with. So now Mormons, you know, have to come up with the reason why Joseph Smith supposedly has this book, and just put it up there, a book of Abraham, Egyptian hieroglyphics, and now why it doesn't mean anything to what he said it means. Because they hadn't discovered the Rosetta Stone at that time. Everybody tracking with me? Just in comparison. Okay, so Mormonism kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense. At this time, people were starting to change. People were starting to think about things. They didn't know how to put it all together. They're a little bit bored with Christianity. So here's a guy who takes a little bit of myth, moves on with it, and creates his own religion. We can point to the errors that he made. We can see how it got started. We can see the lifestyle that he lived. He ends up marrying over a dozen women, many of them minors. Okay? You can see what benefit you get out of that. Okay? Yeah, go ahead and click on that one. There you go. And the Egyptologists now go, this has nothing to do with the book of Abraham. 
they literally translated this before we knew what Egyptian hieroglyphics meant and said this was a Bible book. Everybody go, God have mercy. That's what Mormons believe while they're wearing holy underwear trying to convince you of their religion. That's true. I'm not even making fun of them. It's funny, but it's true, okay? Okay, now Islam. You want to understand Islam. Okay, what do you do? You go back. You understand. You look at the history. You have people in the Arabian Peninsula. They're mo- Thank you. We can remove this atrocity here. Um, <laughs> nothing against the Egyptian hieroglyphics. That's what the guy did with it, right? You know? you know, you look at Islam. Okay, what's going on? Well, it's in the Arabian Peninsula. These people have been influenced by paganism. They have a black stone that they believe fell out of the sky. It's in a, a capital city of, of, their, of their people group there, Mecca. They, they are superstitious. They've heard about Christianity. They've met some Jews. Okay, here's a guy, believes he can go to a cave and hear from an angel. What happens? He goes there, hears from an angel. Nobody else has any proof of it. He comes out and goes, guess what? I heard from an angel, and I want to kill myself now. But then somebody says, oh, no, no, don't kill yourself. Uh, you know, th- he thought it was a spirit, so they go, no, it, it wasn't a demon or a bad thing. It was an angel. Well, why do I want to kill myself? Well, maybe go up there and see again. So he goes up there to almost kill himself, and then the angel goes, stop, stop. I'm actually Gabriel from the Bible. You heard about me. Hey, don't kill yourself. And then he starts telling them all these stories. And then he starts putting words. This angel puts words in Jesus' mouth 600 years earlier. This is around 600 A.D. Puts words in Jesus' mouth who lived way earlier. Starts putting words in Moses' mouth. Moses just happened to say, I'm a Muslim. All of these things that corroborate what he's saying. Moses said he was a Muslim. Jesus said he was a Muslim. Hey, here's the book. Let's take over some land. That, That kind of makes sense. Everybody tracking with me? You look at Islam. It's a little pagan. It's a little Christian. It's a little Jewish. It has some war in it, gives the people back their land, gives them some, some opportunities to get some jihad wives, you know, uh, virgins in paradise. But let's go to the Old Testament. Why are these Jewish people believing these things? The best that we have from the scholarship, oh, is, you know, they were a persecuted minority, and they wanted to tell their stories, so they made up stuff about their past. So at some point... In history, there's this group of people known as the Israelites. They come from a certain dude, not a literal Abraham, just a certain person. And they want to feel special because they're a small tribe. They're, you know, they're nothing compared to everybody else. So they're going to make up stories. Hey, guess what? The God that we worship created everything. No, 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 no. We're better than you guys. Okay, well, maybe, maybe you get a little something there. But hold on. What do these Israelites start talking about? They go against all of the culture of that day, and they go, guess what? There's only one God. This is a culture at a time, Babylon, Egypt, the Mesopotamians, all believed in many gods. And they, and they go, hold up, but let me just tell you, this God that we, we're saying created everything and is not your God, he's, there's only one. Well, now that's a little bit strange. Why would they make that up? You guys tracking with me? What benefit do you get out of that? Now, here's the kicker. You ready for this? And you can't see them. Can't see them. Wow, so convenient. You have the one and true God, and we can't see him. Hello, are you there? You can see how people would think that's crazy. All of the gods of the people could be seen. Hey, look at our God. Look how amazing he is. Look at the nakedness of him. I mean, seriously, look, look at the breasts on this God, you know, this female goddess. You know, look at the breasts. Look at the female parts. Look at the male parts. They love showing off their gods. Look at Egypt. Look at the Sphinx. Look at these half God and half men or half angelic creature, human creatures. Look at this. And then here comes this small tribe and goes, well, we only believe in one. And here's the thing. You can't make any images of them. And guess what they begin to tell? They begin to tell stories. And now their stories aren't filled with, like, mighty battles. They're not filled with amazing conquests. 
They're filled with the judgment coming upon the good guys in the story. It's like, hey, man, let me tell you about the first human being. Okay, was he like a God man? Was he amazing? Was he a superhero? No, he's this guy named Adam, and he ruined it for every one of us. Let me tell you about this guy. It's not Gilgamesh in this, in this journey he goes on. It's not like, let's all look to this guy as the hero. The first person the Jewish people begin to talk about is a loser. Are you guys tracking with me? Does this sound like a Hercules story? Does this sound like one of the, the, the Power Rangers or one of the Avengers? And then it just goes on. Okay, well, what's the story like after that? Well, they get kicked out of the garden because they mess up. They're losers. They don't do it well. And then you know what happens? They have kids. Okay, so the kids, man, they learn from their parents, and then they must become awesome. No, the brother kills his brother. That's, that's, that, that's what we learn in the next part of our story. The brother, he kills his brother. He, he gets mad, he kills him. And then you start to see the story going, okay, so what happens after that? Does everybody get to get along with the gods and, the, and, and, and your God or whatever, the angels, whatever creatures are making? No. A few chapters later, God destroys the whole world. But then I watch, hold on. What do all these cultures that they're speaking to, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, what do they say? Oh, yeah, we've heard about a flood too. We have one in our books as well. But you actually have a description of the boat? Oh, yeah, yeah, the boat was like this, like this, like this. And people in modern times have made it and looked at it and gone, yep, that will float and hold a lot of people. Listen to the flood stories of the other myths. They float on a feather. They float on a this or that. Our flood story is here's the dimensions, here's the, here's the wood. Literally, you could make it right now if you wanted to. Wow. But then it goes on a little bit more. And then you hear about this guy named Abraham. He's amazing. He's a cool guy, right? He does really good. Nope, he lies all the time. He has sex with his, uh, his maid. He starts an entire conflict that will last for years. We're still fighting with these guys over here, you know? We're, still, we'll still, we're in a lot of trouble because of what he did with Ishmael. Oh, so, so he was just an amazing man in that way. Kind of. God was patient with him after he lied about his wife being his sister twice, after he had sex with his maid and had a nation now that we always fight with, the Ishmaelites, God got him to the point where he could trust him and he had a promised child. Oh, so Abraham became rich and famous and that promised child built a kingdom. No, there were just a few hundred people living in the desert. Oh, and then what happened? Oh, those people, they must have grew up strong and became mighty warriors from where all the strong, like, Spartan-like people come from, right? Like, these are your stories. No, uh, one of them got the brothers, man, they don't have good families because remember, the one brother killed the other brother. But in this story, the brothers kidnap the brother and sell him into slavery, and then they end up in Egypt. And imagine now you're an Egyptian listening to this story. So hold on, let me understand this. You start off with a God that we cannot see. We can't even make idols of him. The people in your story are the losers. God has to be patient with them. And then you ended up here because brothers sold one of their brothers into slavery. Uh, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. Seriously, you guys understand the story of Israel now from somebody else's point of view? What do they get out of this? I've tried to figure it out. People try to say, oh, well, they're borrowing stories from other nations. Yeah, but they're not making them look cool. They're, they're not making them better in the sense where you would want to leave. Would you want to stop being an Egyptian and start being an Israelite after hearing that story? Literally, even to this day, when I debate with Hindus, one of the things they like to do is go, your book is boring. You need to read some of ours. 
Our gods battle, they go over here, create worlds, they have sex, they build empires. Seriously, you should even see some of the Indian movies based off their mythology. It's like the Avengers. And what's heaven like for you as a Christian? Ah, the streets of gold. And uh, God? Oh, that would get boring. What else? No, there's God. That's it. Streets of gold. Some angels flying around. You mean there's no epic stuff you guys are doing up there? You don't get to go create other? Well, we don't know if we do or not. He didn't tell us. I'm telling you, I've had Hindus look at me and go, your, your God is boring. But see, our God is holy. They make gods in their image. God made us in his image. Okay? But now imagine you're an Egyptian and you're hearing this story and now putting yourself a little bit more into the future here now. You're hearing about this guy named Moses who that God has said to let your people go. That You've heard now Moses is going up to your Pharaoh and saying, Hey, Pharaoh, I got a staff here, and guess what I want you to do? Let my people go. Okay, so is, is Moses going to plan a battle? No, he's not going to go fight. Is there going to be a big war? Is there going to be a big Spartan 300 conquest? This is Sparta. No, he just throws down his... Staff turns into a snake. Oh, yeah, but our musicians, uh, magicians do that too. Yeah, but our snake eats your snake. And then he turns the river into blood. Have you heard about that? Oh, I haven't heard about that. Yeah, it's happening. What about the gnats? You feel them yet? Okay, now think about this. God then delivers them. And Pharaoh, he's freaking out. He doesn't know what in the world just happened, right? He has watched this entire thing go down, and he thinks it's a good idea to go chase them into the desert. After all of these plagues, after he's lost his firstborn son, and he sees the, the Red Sea parted by the God that he's been messing with and getting punished by this whole time. And what does he say to himself? I'm going to run into that Red Sea. Yeah, the same God who's been messing with you. He's probably going to mess with you again. But no, no, we're running in there. Okay? Now they all drown in the sea. You're the Israelites now. Imagine this. What do you do? You look at Moses and you go, what's next? He's like, well, get ready for a long walk. And within weeks and months, God starts revealing to them what we call the Old Testament. He takes the oral traditions that these people have and he starts writing it down. Think about that. And then while he's writing that down, God begins to tell him, this is now what I want you to do. I want you to build a temple. A tabernacle. I want you to have these things in the tabernacle. You remember when the patriarchs, your ancestors, made sacrifices? You're now going to do sacrifices like this. Now there's going to be a group of people known as priests. It's going to come from Moses' brother's line, Aaron, the priests, the Levites. So there's going to be a book called Leviticus for the Levites. I'm going to give you a law. You're going to learn this law. It's going to start off with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, he is one. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Make no images in the name of, uh, make no images of that God. And then he'll give them the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments aren't the only commandments in that law. They're called the introduction. Those are the first ten of 613. And then what happens? Everybody follows that law? Of course not. It gets so bad with the people in the wilderness that God says, all of you adults, you're dying here. I'm taking your children to the promised land. God allows them to stay in the desert for another 40 years just so the adults can die and the children can grow up and take the promised land. 
They get into the promised land, and you would think that they would be ready for what God has for them, and they're still doubting, having troubles. They get there, walls of Jericho fall down. It's a miracle. They begin to live there. And you would think, now it's finally over. The children, they listen to the parents, uh, or rather they listen to God. They saw the punishment that their parents had. They're like, I don't want to be like them. I'm in the promised land. God kept his word. We got our oral traditions. It's time for us to do it right. And what do we see as we look through the Bible? They do literally everything wrong. To the point where God sends prophets and goes, hey, guess what? If you keep doing this wrong, I'm actually going to take you out of the land I just brought you into. And the prophets come to the kings and keep warning them and warning them and warning them. And they don't listen. And eventually what happens? They lose their land. And then hundreds of years go by and God doesn't speak to them anymore. While they're in captivity, different nations take over their land. So they eventually, you know, the first Assyria, Babylon, and then it's Greece, uh, Medes and Persia, then it's Greece, and then it's Rome. And then now Jesus comes on the scene. Somebody say Jesus. And what does Jesus now do? Jesus now says to them, I'm going to fulfill the entire thing you guys haven't been doing right since that first guy, Adam. Okay? He fulfills the law perfectly from the very first mess up. And all of the things in between, he fulfills the law. Go to Matthew chapter 5, please. How many are interested in this now? Hopefully I got some of your attention so you can understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God set up for a blessing for his people. It shows his honor. It shows his love. The Old Testament is God's character. It's his patience. Looking at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is going to summarize this whole entire thing. Looking at verse 12, he says, uh, verse 17 rather, do not think I have come to abolish the law. All those things Moses had and wrote down. Or the prophets when they pointed out when you broke the law. I have not come to abolish that. I have not come to take it away in other words. But I have come to do what? Fulfill it. For truly I tell you until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until how many things are accomplished? Everything. Going back to kids who grew up in church. Oh, I don't like the Bible. I'm leaving church. They call this deconstruction. People leaving Christianity now. Oh, the Bible has all of these atrocities. God was mean. Why could he do such and such a thing? I now ask them, why did the Jews ever hold on to these traditions? What was the point? Now that you know the story and the truth of it, what did they gain from it? What did they gain? They suffered the entire time. Dr. Michael Brown, a Jew for Jesus, says you can summarize all of Jewish history as this. They tried to kill us, but God delivered us, and now let's party. That's the whole thing. They are always disobeying, and then they are getting to the point of destruction. God delivers them. They celebrate for a little bit, and then they go right back into destruction. It's like that meme, if you've seen, of the guy getting a sheep out of the ditch, and then the sheep jumps right back into the ditch. What did they get out of it? They're an oppressed group. Think about them in the time of Rome, of, of Rome when Jesus comes onto the scene. And Jesus is now saying the greatest proclamation a Jewish person could ever hear. Everything you guys have lived for, everything you guys are about, I'm going to now fulfill and bring to a completion. How many know that's mind-blowing? Or it's blasphemy, right? Either Jesus is blaspheming, saying he's greater than Moses, equal to God, able to shut the whole thing down when he says it's finished, 
And that's a blasphemy, or he is who he said he is. Now think about this. You're the disciples. You're seeing Jesus say he's greater than Abraham. Go to John chapter 8. How many have heard Jesus say that? That before Abraham was, I am. He's greater than Moses, the one who gets the Ten Commandments. Jesus is walking around as if he owns the place. How many believe that's because he does? Look at John chapter 8. Jesus arguing with the Jewish people. He starts in uh, verse, verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father from whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. He's talking about God as if he's his Father, not like in a general sense, like we would all say, but like in a specific sense, like I'm his unique son, one and only. I have a relationship with him that nobody else has. That's how he's talking to them. He says, that one you call your God is my Father. Though you don't know him. He tells people, you don't know him. These Jewish people had spent thousands of years knowing him. And he says to them, you don't know him. I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father, Abraham, pointing back to one of those key characters in the story, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Notice what Jesus says. He's like 30 years old sitting in front of him. He said, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Look at the Jewish response to this. You are not even 50 years old, they said, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, what does he say? I am. He uses the name that Moses asked, how should we know who you are, God? At the burning bush, Moses asked God, what is your name? What are you like? I've heard about you from my, my ancestors, but I want to know your name. And Jesus spoke in that bush and said, I am that I am. That's what God said to Moses. Now we find out right here, that was actually Jesus. Jesus was right there. Are you guys tracking with me? Isn't this amazing? And then now let's go to the communion. In the book of Luke, the communion, what we just took today. What does Jesus say in Luke chapter 22, verse 20? Remember at the beginning of his life in Matthew, he said, none of this will disappear until it's all fulfilled. So, okay, he's going to do it. Now look at the end of his life, right before the crucifixion, chapter 22, verse 20 of Luke. In the same way, after the supper, this was a meal for them, he takes a cup and he says, this is the new covenant. Remember I showed you at the very beginning, Old Testament, New Testament, that's old covenant, new covenant. Okay, everybody say covenant, covenant. equals testament equals deal, equals agreement. Okay, you understand all those words are synonymous. Old covenant, old agreement, old way of doing things, old testament, old deal, old agreement. He says, now this cup, look at it. It is the new covenant in my blood. Wow, so way back when Adam sinned, blood was shed. That's how he got animal skin. When they were given offerings, one got rejected, Cain and Abel. One got rejected, one didn't. That was over the blood sacrifice. When Noah got off the boat after the world was destroyed, what was there? Sacrifice. When God made a covenant with Abraham that he was going to use him to build the nations, what was there? Sacrifice. What did Jacob do? Sacrifice. What did the tribes do? Sacrifice. What was Moses taught to do when he got those commandments, some of those 613 laws? Sacrifice. Everybody tracking with me? Jesus now says, this is it. This is the new covenant. This is the new deal. And it's my blood. 
cannibal much? And all the Roman Catholics said, amen. He's not talking literal blood because his blood didn't spill into that cup at that moment. If it was meant to be literal blood, then he would have had to hit a main vein and go, this is my blood. If he's holding up a cup of wine and saying, this is my blood, how many know we're not talking about cannibalism right now? That doesn't even make any sense. So he just all of a sudden made his blood go into that cup right there, and he's like, drink it? No, no. He takes a cup from the table with the wine. It's already there. And he says, this is the new covenant, my blood. We're supposed to understand that figuratively. Amen? I don't know. Has anybody ever watched Zoolander? Okay, what happens at the end of uh, Zoolander? He wants to build the, the house, that the, uh, the, the library for books, you know, that they, they said he would help him to build. But when he first sees the plans, he breaks it all apart because he goes, how can anybody fit into that place? Does anybody watch the shows like that? Okay. If I have here a model of my house and I go, this is my house, how many know I'm not going to try to move into the model? When Jesus is holding up the cup going, this is my blood, how many know we're not drinking real blood right here? It's a model. It's a representation, right? But it's poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is, is mine on the table, talking about Jesus, the son of man, will go as it, as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. Hold up. Everybody say, hold up a minute. What is he talking about, been decreed? Go back to the very first stories. Remember we talked about that guy, Adam, the loser? Loser. What does God say to Mary? Your offspring will crush that serpent. You mean right there from the beginning of our stories, there's a prophecy about one coming from a woman that will crush the serpent, but the serpent will sting his heel. So the heel will come down on the serpent from the seed of Eve, but that heel is going to be stung. If you go literally almost chapter by chapter, but definitely book by book, from Genesis all the way to Matthew, you'll see over 30 major prophecies being repeated over and over and over again in different ways. If you count them uniquely, upwards of 300 but if you count them in categories, about 30 major prophecies. He's going to be born of a woman, so he's going to be a human. Later on, you figure out he's going to be a sacrifice. Later on, you figure out he's going to come from the tribe of Judah, from the household of David. Later on, you then figure, uh, find out, like we did in the prophets, that he's going to be a suffering servant, but yet he'll also be a king. He then will rule and reign forever, but between those times, he'll establish his kingdom. That's why we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're praying for the establishment until it actually comes. Can I hear an amen? You see all of these prophecies, and now notice this. Jesus says, what has been decreed will come to pass. Anyone who has ever deconstructed Christianity, explain to me all the decrees that came to pass through Jesus. The best guess that they come up with is, well, the Christians who wanted to make Jesus out to be their Messiah went back into the Old Testament and made all the prophecies somehow fit into his life. How is that even possible? There are prophecies you have to fit into Jesus' life that no one even understood until Jesus told them what it meant. Do you understand that? The disciple, I said, do you all understand that? Let me help you. As we learn today, Peter betrayed Jesus at the crucifixion. 
How in the world is Peter now starting a religion and the first part you learn about the religion is I was an idiot. Hey guys, I'm starting a new religion. What's it called? I'm an idiot. How are you an idiot? Well, the one that fulfilled all of these complicated prophecies, I actually told him not to do that. Then he called me Satan. That was a little harsh, but I forgave him, hung out with him for a while. And then I betrayed him, not once, not twice, but three times. And then while he was buried in the grave, which was also prophesied, like Jonah would be in a whale, he would be in the grave, I quit and went back to fishing. Explain to me why in the world that's our guy. I mean, you got to give it to the Pope. If they're going to pick a guy to start a religion with, it's going to be Peter. He's the most popular disciple, right? That, that makes sense, right? It's a, it's a good guy to go with. But is he not the Oompa Loompa of our disciples? How in the world is that our guy? The guy literally had everything wrong. In the scriptures, he doesn't even give the Gentiles a chance to become a Christian until God shows him a vision and he argues with him. How many have heard about Peter arguing with God? Kill and eat, Peter. He gets a, he gets, you know, at this time the Jews only ate kosher food and he sees a vision of lechon, bacon. He sees, you know, all of these wonderful things in there and, and, you know, crawfish and shrimp and all this. And God tells him in the vision, kill and eat it, man. It's time to crawfish boil. It's time to eat some lobster. Let's go. And Peter argues with him. How is that our guy? How does that make sense? See, when people try to come up with another explanation to what's happening, it actually sounds worse than what the truth is. The truth is, these Jewish people, and please go to Acts chapter 1, did not even understand the prophecies, let alone to fabricate it to fit Jesus. They admit they didn't even understand it until he explained it to them. After Jesus suffered, verse 3, he presented himself to them. This is after the resurrection. Okay? and gave many com- convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them for over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Does everybody get that? He spoke to them for 40 days explaining it. Now please go down just a little bit more and notice verse 6. They still don't understand it. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to do everything that you promised to do in the future and restore the kingdom to Israel. And he said, it's not even for you to know the times or the dates, but the thought that the Father has set by his authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You think they would have it then, right? Okay, oh, hold on. Everything you just told us for 40 days was actually stuff we were supposed to do. Like, you're just not, like, ending the whole scene right now. We're just not cut. Go to the kingdom of God on earth. And we're, 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 end with, we're done with the world this way it's been. You know, we're into the world right now. You're actually wanting us to do stuff. Yes, I want you to go do stuff. You, do they, you think they have it now? No. As he gets taken up to heaven, and as he has told them, you need to go do stuff, the angels say to them, men of Galilee, why do you still keep looking up at the sky? Uh, I think it's going to come back pretty soon. Uh, I don't know, man. We're not supposed to do anything, are we? Did he not just tell us what to do? He said, go into Jerusalem. Wait there till the promise comes. Then go be my witness. And don't worry about the dates. Do that until I come back. These are our guys making up a story to try to go into the Scripture, to figure it out, to somehow, some way, make Jesus fit. Not at all. Somebody say the devil is a liar. 
the truth is way more interesting than fiction. The truth of the matter, Jesus comes and fulfills 613 laws in ways that no one understood. In ways that we are still looking back on Scripture, connecting dots. We're not writing new Scripture, but we're connecting dots in new ways. Theologians looking back on things going, wow, that happened back then. Look at this word. It correlates to this word over here. And wow, this could be happening over here. We're, we're careful, obviously, but we still haven't figured it all out. He spent 40 days, and they still thought he was ending the world. And his whole point was, here's the 40-day Bible college so you can go out there and go get the job done. And they're just looking up at this guy. What are we supposed to do, guys? And then, as I said, the story goes on, and Peter argues with God over getting the Gentiles in the kingdom. Because how many know if Jesus would have ended the world there, heaven would have been a pretty small place? What, about a million Jews is the entire kingdom of God? How many are glad for 2,000 years the kingdom of God's been growing? Amen. It's been getting bigger than just them boys at that point. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me time to exist and accept your kingdom. Going to our scripture today, let's see if it makes sense a little bit more. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. What is this? This is the book of Hebrews. This is the book where now a Jew is speaking to other Jews going, here's the big picture. Here's what you need to understand. What is the main point? What is the point of all of this? Why were there so much human history in the people of Israel? Why were there so many commands? Why was there a high priest? Why was there sacrifice? Here it is. This is the point. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Wow! You mean everything those Israelites were doing on earth was actually a shadow of what was in heaven? You mean the Lord's prayer is actually not a joke? It's the real deal on earth as it is in heaven? Absolutely. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it was necessary for this one to also offer something or something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a what? That is a what? Come on, four of you are saying, I want the whole church to say, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is a where? In heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was told to build the tabernacle. Here's God speaking. See to it that you make how many things? Everything according to the what? The pattern shown you on the mountain. Go to Exodus 25, 40. You mean everything they were doing on earth was a pattern in heaven? That's what the old covenant was doing. Absolutely. Do you think the new covenant comes with a pattern? Think about it. If the Old Testament, the old deal, the old covenant came with a pattern, do you think the new one does? In the Old Testament, the pattern was a tabernacle, was a sacrificial altar, was a brazen laver, all of these things. What is the pattern in the new covenant? Here's where you want to take the simple answer Bible class and just say Jesus. My kids always say Jesus when they don't know. Jesus. It's going to help you this time. What, or I should say, who is the pattern of the new covenant? Jesus. Let it sink in. God speaking to Moses. 
See, and it's a direct quote. We just read it, but see it again here. See that you make, Moses, everything. How many things? Everything according to the what? The pattern shown you on the mountain. You want something to blow your mind right now? Somebody say yes. Otherwise, I feel bored up in here. Nobody literally said anything. I had to tell you to say yes. Man, it's a lonely job being a pastor. Go to Matthew 17. I'm going to show this to you. It's up to you if you want to believe it or not. I will tell you, take it with a grain of salt. Not all pastors believe this. It's not doctrine that makes heaven or hell. You know, you can still go to heaven and disagree with me. It's not a big deal in that way. But I think it will help you see something that maybe you've never seen. Keep that tab open and just go back to where we were before in Exodus. God says to Moses, make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain, the tabernacle, the altar of incense, the brazen altar where the sacrifice would happen, the brazen laver where they would be washed. Matter of fact, can you just please put that up there? A picture of the tabernacle. Show them all that was there. Uh, We put it up here uh, a few weeks ago. Just good to have it all in your mind. The tabernacle... Starts with an altar of sacrifice. Then it moves to a brazen laver made out of brass where you would wash yourself. That was considered the, uh, the outer court. Then you would go into a place called the inner court, the holy place. There would be three things there. The menorah, the seven golden candlesticks representing the seven manifestations of God. The altar of incense representing the prayers of God. Just click on that one to the right, please. And then you would see the table of showbread representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the government of God. Then there was a veil that led into the holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Everybody go, ooh, Indiana Jones. Okay? So did I describe it pretty well? Were you guys using your imagination? Altar of offerings, the brazen laver. Here you enter into the holy place. Table of showbread, menorah, altar of incense, veil. Then there you have the Ark of the Covenant. Going to our passage in Exodus, please. Everybody get this and get ready to make the connection. God says to Moses, make Everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now go to uh, Matthew chapter 17. What happens here on this mountain? Let's see if you can make the connection. Uh, uh, Matthew 17 verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led him up to a high what? A high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Just there then on the mountain appeared before him who? Moses and who? Elijah talking with Jesus. (laughs) Y'all ready for this? What if I told you the weirdest thing about the Bible is I think Moses time traveled and saw Jesus and made the pattern of the earthly tabernacle that was represented in heaven off the person Jesus, which it was from the very beginning. You'd probably stop coming to the church or buy my book, one or the other. Hmm. Where can we go with this, Pastor? Can we turn that into something about aliens? Um, I don't know how to say Jesus is the exact type of the tabernacle and how Moses could see the anti-type, the physical version of it, without him seeing Jesus. I can't do that. In other words, I have to insert into Moses seeing something up there. I have to have Jesus there. I'm going to show you why in just a few moments. I have to have Jesus there. But when would he see Jesus in a way that would be an archetype of the tabernacle? Sounds like here at the Mountain of Transfiguration. If there's no time travel going on in the Bible, which I can understand if you don't want to go there with me, He at least, everybody watch this, got to come back the second time and see the fulfillment of what the new covenant is 
That would be pretty cool, right? So we'll just keep it there for some of you guys before you think I'm doing some uh, Doctor Strange in the multiverse stuff here. But once again, look at the Bible through a fresh lens and see what's going on here. The fresh lens, go to Exodus chapter 33, is that Moses has been seeing patterns, but he's also been seeing people. He's been seeing the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so those patterns, I believe, come from the person of Jesus. Now, once again, how much of heaven did he see without Jesus or how much did he need to see when he came back down to earth? We'll leave that to the theologians to decide at another time. It's not a major doctrine, but for me, it blows my mind that that could have been how he put it all together, that he saw in Jesus all of these components, that he saw in Jesus he is the sacrifice. He is that which washes us and cleanses us. He is the one who gives us the Spirit of God in seven manifestations. He is the one who holds the 12 tribes of Israel. He is the one who brings the incense as intercession to the Father, and he is the one who sits on the Ark of the Covenant bringing the sacrifice to God surrounded by angels. He is the living tabernacle. He had to see it somehow. So go to Exodus 33, one of my favorite parts right here. The Bible says that Moses would meet with God and speak with him face to face. Verse 11 of 33, the Lord would speak to Moses how? Face to face as one speaks to a friend. And yet later on, he says, I want to see your glory. Look at what he says here in Exodus chapter 33. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with us, with your people, unless you go with us? What will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you ask because I'm pleased with you and you will know me by name. Then, the Mo then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one will see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on the rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face you must not be seen. What do I think happened right there? I think God took him on a trip to the future. Because remember, he always heard the Father, but he never saw him. But he always saw Jesus. He didn't see him in the flesh, though. He only saw him in his pre-incarnate nature. There was an exact time Jesus came in the flesh, and up until that point, he hadn't had a virgin birth, flesh. So what I believe the Father does is says, you know what? You can't see my face. And that's not even really what you need to see. What you need to see is my mercy. You all see that right there? You will see my mercy. You will see my compassion. So just follow it out here. A little strange, but, but follow it out there. So as the father passes by, he puts his hand on him. <laughs> he opens up his eyes. He sees Jesus in the flesh with Elijah the prophet there. And now he begins to see Jesus talk with him, explain to him the new covenant. He hears the Father then speak to Jesus. He then comes right back to the mountain, and he goes down there, and he builds what he saw in a physical representation of what Jesus embodied in person. I believe that's why Moses said, someone will come after me and be the next prophet that you follow, but it wouldn't be anybody like Joshua or any of the prophets. It's the very one Christ that's going to come. I believe he thought that Christ was coming right after him. 
because he had met with Christ. Now, once again, if it hadn't been in this time travel scenario, in some way he had to understand those things because he's encountering God in a way like no one ever has or will in the old covenant. He is the dude. Elijah is the one that's closest to him. Not even David had encounters like Moses or Elijah. Elijah is close to Moses, but Moses is still even greater. Why? Because Moses gets law. Moses gets covenant. Elijah stands for the prophets, those enforce the law. Law and prophets. And so the law and the giving of the law to Moses is greater. That's why you see in the new covenant, you see that the law must be fulfilled and the one like Elijah must come before him, which is John the Baptist. There's a fulfillment of the law and prophets, but what is greater is the role of Moses. That's why Jesus is said in the book of Hebrews that one now greater than Moses has come, the very one that Moses prophesied. Can I hear an amen? Look at it in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just, watch, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Do you see how he's compared to Moses there? Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than that of who? Moses, just as the what the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses, Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the oh. <laughs> It's up to you guys how deep you want to go. But let me just say this. I'm in good company. Some of my favorite theologians believe this. Very smart people. We're not being weird in this. How did Moses understand the future? He might have been on that transfiguration. If he wasn't, we just have two options. Very simple, right? Very basic. Option A, what I have given to you, is that Moses understood the future by going to the future. That's, that's my explanation. Option B is he, he understands the future by going to heaven, seeing amazing things. And then because he understood the future as an attaboy, guess what you get to do? He got to come back and see the future. Amen? It's one of the two things. He either went to the future to see it or he experienced something that gave him the future and then God blessed him to come and see the future. But this is what is so powerful about the passage we're reading here. Going back to Hebrews 8 in our notes, please. The Bible teaches us that these things were a shadow of what was to come. Jesus was going to be the greater one. Jesus is going to fulfill all of this. Verse 5, they serve at a sanctuary, talking about the priest, that is a copy and a shadow, a shadow of what is in heaven, which I believe is Jesus manifesting in those physical objects. But the reality is Jesus. They had the shadow of the actual tabernacle. We have the reality of Jesus. I think Moses saw both in one. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Verse 6, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator. He is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. How many like the promises better in the new covenant? Like we're not going to kill you if you're a rebellious child. How many are happy about that? Like we're going to work with you. We're going to be patient with you. The other one was I promise you I'm going to kill you right now. Okay, so this, is, this one's got better promises, okay? How many are glad we're not stoning adulterers right now? 
be like half the church would be gone. You know, we were some wild people back out there in those days, right? We wouldn't even have enough church. Come on. Especially if you put pornography up in there. That's the same sin as adultery. The church would be empty today. Angel Gabriel would have to come and preach to us. Oh, man, we got another empty church, boys. Send down the angels to go preach to them. We stoned everybody. They're done. How many are glad that the earth is not swallowing you up anymore? Okay, so there's better promises. I'm not, I'm not like hating on the Old Testament. I'm just saying the New Testament is better. The Bible tells me to look at that. The author of Hebrews, who is an expert of the Old Testament, is telling me to look at that. He's been quoting the Old Testament to us this whole time. How many have been learning from the book of Hebrews about your Old Testament? Amen? Verse 7, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said. So who broke that deal, that first deal, that old covenant, God or the people? The people. That's why he had to make a new one. And what does he do? He becomes not only the priest but the sacrifice to make it right. Now notice what the author who I believe is Paul here, notice what he's going to do to help us understand it. In closing to today's message, he's going to give us the whole prophecy of Jeremiah. In summary, as we get ready to read it, see if you can see this as the main point. Here it is. I'm going to give you a better covenant, and you all better listen to it. That's what I think it is. You messed up the first one, but I'm going to give you a better one and do it right. Tell me if that summarizes it as we go into it. The days are coming, declares the Lord. I believe this is death, burial, and resurrection, as we'll remember during Easter time. Declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. How many think I summarize it somewhat decent? Y'all mess up the first one. Here's a better one. Now do it this way. And look at how he ends the passage, the author here. By calling this covenant new. Where do we get the idea of a new covenant from? Do we get it from the New Testament? No, we get it from where? The Old Testament. That's where you have to speak to every Jew and go, hey, if you don't think I got the right new one, where's yours, Bubba? Come on, where's yours? Because you don't have a temple anymore. And the Bible said in Daniel that when you see this second temple destroyed, the Messiah will have already come. The promise to Daniel was when they come out of captivity and build that second temple, the Messiah will come. Open up the tab, please, Daniel 9, so they can see. I'm not making this up. How could the disciples have pointed this to Jesus? Could they have picked the time when the, when the destruction of the temple would have come? That's why when we look to the Jewish people and we say, okay, if Jesus is not your Messiah, then where was he? Because it had to happen before that temple was destroyed. Going to Daniel chapter 9, let me just give a quick little history update here. They're in Babylon, like Daniel being thrown into a lion's den, in a wicked place because they had broke the laws of God, the covenant. They have now had God turn their back on. God has turned his back on them and is punishing them. But he's not going to leave them in punishment. He's going to bring them back. And what does he promise to do when he brings them back? He promises to make a new temple because that first one, known as Solomon's temple, had been destroyed. How many are tracking with me? Now, what does it say here about this new temple? 
Daniel, I have come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Okay? Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people. That's 490 years. And your holy city to finish transgression. Watch this. To put an end to sin. In 490 years, Daniel, sin is going to end. Atonement is going to be made for wickedness. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Somebody say, the cross. Amen. But we'll keep going just in case you don't see it there. To seal up vision and prophecy to anoint the most holy place. You need a temple for that. Theirs is already destroyed. Watch, verse 25. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and what? Rebuild Jerusalem until the what? Anointed one, Mashiach, Christ. Until he comes the ruler, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be what? Put to death and have nothing. The people of the ruler will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. That is 70 A.D. Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple in 30 A.D., y'all. Come on. Put that in your Hindu pipe and smoke it. We the real deal. We the real deal. We've been prophesying from day one. Y'all faking. Nostradamus and all. Y'all faking. Come on. Seriously, tell Madam Cleo, check me out. Catch me outside. Amen. I got some Bible for her. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. Desolations have been decreed. Why? Because there's one seven missing. Those are the seven years of tribulation. He will confirm a covenant for many for seven. That's the Antichrist. In the middle of the seven, that's mid-tribulation. He will put an end to sacrifice. That's a third temple being defiled. That's when they get to build their temple back. At that temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Put up Daniel 70 weeks, please, and look for the green chart. You should see it come up there. Thank you, my brother. Everybody track with me. This is not a joke, man. Does everybody get this? Let me just review some of the stuff we just read right there. How can you fake that? Well, the the book of Daniel was written after the destruction of, uh, of 70 AD. No, dude. We have found, listen, in the 1950s, that means the Roman Catholic Church couldn't touch it with the Illuminati. We found in the 1950s the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have these same kind of prophecies. These have predict. We have our Old Testament. Are you all listening to me? This predates Jesus. The Dead Sea Scrolls predate Jesus by 100 years. We have the Septuagint, the Greek translation that became popular when the Greeks ruled over Israel. The, the Jewish people are like, man, you're all speaking Greek now. we got to make a Bible for you. That's called the Septuagint. That was hundreds of years before Jesus. Jewish records, we got it. This was prophesied well before Jesus that it would be done just like this. The total being 70 weeks but the 483 happening before Jesus, the last seven years happening after Jesus, and Jesus being there right before the destruction of the temple. We've talked about this. Going to Hebrews now, everybody see this. You can't make this stuff up. In our notes, please, the new covenant had an expiration date on it. The new covenant, Jeremiah was a peer of Daniel. Hey, guys. A new covenant is coming, and this is what it's going to look like. That's Jeremiah, right? It's going to be like God coming into your heart and changing your life. And then Daniel goes, okay, and then here's the timeline. You're pretty much stuck with it now, aren't you? 
it's going to look like this, and it's going to come like this. And how many know you start, you start tapping and go, okay, well, when is it going to happen? Now do you understand why Magi were looking at stars? Where did Magi come from? Babylon. Why were they looking at stars about 490 years? Because they remembered the prophecies of Daniel, a wise man that lived among them. That's why the pagans were looking at stars going, man, there's going to be a sign. Because it talks about there being a sign in the heavenlies. That's why they were looking. This wasn't a joke. It was never a joke. This this was never made up. This never came about by the will of man. Look at me uh, with me, please, quickly. The first Peter chapter 1 verse 11 in closing. The disciples even had to explain this to people while they were preaching, both to pagan and to Jew. They had to explain this to them over and over and over again. No one understood how to put these pieces together. We didn't even understand it. Go up, please, uh, to verse 10 so they can see the context. Thank you, sir. Concerning this salvation, this is Peter talking now. Remember we talked about the guy who was messing up all the time. He's the one in charge now, right? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently with the greatest of care. Think about how much care they took over their documents and over their history. Trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of who? The Spirit of Christ, Jesus. Think about it. Jesus sent his Spirit to those prophets. When that Spirit of Christ was pointing to them, when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah, that the glories would follow, it was revealed to them, notice this, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. So imagine you're Daniel, and you just got the timeline, and you're like, okay, are these weeks or are these years? And the angel's like, uh, they're years. Oh, man, 490 years. I don't think I'm going to be around. But they were faithful. They still wrote down those scriptures. They taught it to their children. Still to this day, the Jewish people remain, even for over 1,800 years, not even having a nation, they remain faithful to their old covenant. That's why we never are anti-Semitic. To hell with that. My Messiah is a Jew. My prophets are Jew. I pray for the Jews. Amen? So that they will receive their Messiah because it's staring at them, right? But imagine that you're Daniel. Oh, 490. You're Jeremiah. Daniel, what did you get? 490. Oh, man. And guess what? 90 of those years are the last years of our Bible, and the next 400 is silence. God goes, I'll see you in 400 years, boys. That's why when you start in the book of Matthew or the book of Mark, whatever gospel you want to start with, where it starts with the narrative, you start to hear about John the Baptist coming on the scene. And John the Baptist's dad doesn't even believe it. John the Baptist's dad gets struck uh, mute. He can't even talk because he doubts whether or not it's even happening. Are you kidding me, angel? Give me another sign. Because the angel says, your wife, because they were old, your wife is going to have a baby, and he's going to be the Elijah that you all have been waiting for. That's in the book of Malachi. The last time God spoke, he said, get ready for an Elijah-like figure to come, and your son's it. And that guy, the priest, Zechariah, goes, no, no, that can't be. Shut him down for the whole pregnancy. Couldn't talk until they asked him at the birth, what is his name going to be? His name's going to be John. Right now, do you get it? Do you get it now? Come home, brothers and sisters. That's why he precedes Jesus. He's the forerunner. And while he's preceding Jesus, Jesus is growing up, going around the temple, and then people don't recognize him. But every now and then there's a miracle. There's a, there's a person that gets it. 
There's somebody who gets it, and then they, they pass on that information. So by the time he's getting a little bit older, everybody's starting to wonder, when's this thing going to pop off? And even Mary, the mother, tries to push him to do it at a wedding. And he does it, but he says, I'm not doing it the way you want me to. I'm going to do it my way. And when he starts it, it's three years of just fulfilling, fulfilling, fulfilling. He's the lamb slain. He's the, he's the sacrifice. He's the high priest. And the disciples, and the disciples, and, and, and the, the Jewish people, their heads are just spinning. What did you say, be born again? Yeah, I talked about it way back then to Ezekiel. Don't you remember the Spirit will make you laugh? Oh, you, you mean there's a new covenant? Yeah, you remember I told you about that back there in, in Jeremiah? I sent my Spirit. Oh, you mean you, you know Abraham? I was there before Abraham. So that when it's all said and done, and let's go back to the book of Hebrews quickly, please. In closing, when it's all said and done, he goes, this is new. This is new. Nothing has been like it before. The other one now is obsolete and outdated. Does that mean we don't respect the Old Testament? No, but we just know the agreement, the deal is no longer in effect. That's why I can eat lechon. That's why I can eat pork. It's not that I disrespect that Old Testament. It's just that's not my deal. That's not my covenant. That's not my agreement. My agreement is the fulfillment of that. Because remember, Moses was making a shadow. Moses was making a pattern of something. But Jesus is the actual something. Now we understand that it's not about the diet. It's not about the priests. It's not about the Levites. It's not about the temple. It's about Jesus. Go ahead and scroll down for me, please. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Keep on going. Help this preacher preach. It's Jesus. He's in our burnt offering. He's our Savior. In the meal offering, he's our substance. In the fellowship offering, he's our security. In the sin offering, he's our substitute. In the guilt offering, he's our satisfaction. In the Passover, he's the Lamb of God. In the Feast of Unleavened, in bread, he is the bread of life. In the feast of first fruits, he's the firstborn of the Father. In the feast of Pentecost, he's the Lord of the harvest. In the feast of the trumpets, he's the soon and coming king. In the day of atonement, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sin. In the feast of the tabernacles, he's the new dwelling place. In the temple's outer court, he is the sacrifice of the brazen laver and the one who washes us clean, or the sacrifice of the brazen altar and the one who washes us clean at the brazen laver. As you go into the holy place, his bread is the word. His word is our bread. He is the table of showbread. He sends the spirit to manifest in our lives the things of God. He intercedes as the incense of God. His flesh is the veil that is torn so that Jew and Gentile can now have fellowship with God the Father in the holy place. He is the place of the mercy seat, the sacrifice surrounded by the angels because of the blood he shed for his people. He is the curse on the tree, the blessing of Abraham, our high priest and king. Savior and judge. If you love him, would you stand up with me now? Come on, would you bless him? Hallelujah. Nobody like our Jesus. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you today. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? Gloria, Senor. No one is like our Jesus. Father, we pray that we'll know Jesus in every one of those ways he fulfilled the Old Testament. In every one of those ways that he's our feast, he's our festival, he's our sacrifice, he's our priest, he's our tabernacle, that we will know him in all of those ways. That, Father, no one here will walk out seeing Jesus the same. With, everybody, with every head bowed and eyes closed and an attitude of prayer, 
If you don't know Jesus as your Savior yet, would you do so right now and ask him to come into your heart to change you, to forgive you, to make you a new creation? That's the beauty of the new covenant. It's that easy here. You don't need to go to a temple. You don't need to perform a special ceremony with a priest. You can right now, wherever you're at, just do what the Bible says. Call him as Lord and ask him for a new life. Say, Jesus, be my Lord. Be my Savior. And then ask him, say, make me new. Give me a new life, the new covenant. Put your spirit in me to write it upon my mind and my heart. If you're here today and you haven't been serving Jesus, right, maybe you've been a Christian, but you're known as a backslider. Ask the Lord to cleanse you and start over right now. Hit reset. Come back to the things of God. Ask him for a fresh love, a fresh fire, a fresh outpouring. Right now, would you pray for those in this room that are accepting Christ or coming back? And as you pray for them, pray for friends and family that need to come here next week and hear the same kind of message. Lord, we lift up to those here right now, those here, Lord, that need you. Hear their prayers. Answer them, God, like you've done for us. I know you will. Save, sanctify, change, rearrange, make new, heal, make whole. And save our neighbors, save our community, save our coworkers. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus over Chicago today. Jesus over this nation today. Jesus over our whole world. Jesus, Jesus, we need you. We need your forgiveness. We need your sacrifice. Somebody said, why well, pray to saints? No, you don't need to pray to saints. Pray to Jesus. That's all that you need today because Jesus hears you. Jesus hears you. Talk to him a few more moments. Lord, change us, rearrange us. Those of you here who already know him, ask him to bless you to be a blessing. Ask him to help you wherever you go this week, to your family, to your job, to your community, to spread that message. There's a new covenant. There's a new covenant. It's through the person of Jesus. He's the fulfillment of everything of the old. Right now, Lord, use us to spread this message. You're the alpha. You're the omega. You're the beginning. You're the end. You're the first. You're the last. You're the lion. You're the lamb. You're our healer. You're our provider. You're our righteousness. You're our sanctifier. You're our peace. You're our shepherd. Bright and morning star, lily of the valley, fairest of 10,000, the lover of my soul. Hallelujah. Teach us to praise you. Anyone dealing with depression or anxiety, learn to praise God through the pain, the mental anguish. Anyone here facing a trial or temptation, learn to praise God. Learn to praise God despite what's going on in the world around you. When you praise him, when you worship him, your heart will be full of his love. You'll endure whatever's coming ahead of you. A few moments before we dismiss, fill us with your power and the Holy Ghost. We touched on it earlier. But if you're here today and you haven't received the power of the Holy Spirit to go be a witness, to go build the kingdom, ask him to baptize you right now and be open to new languages coming to your spirit and speak them out even right now. Let the Holy Spirit baptize us because we've got work to do, saints, in the name of Jesus. We're here to be witnesses. Well, I thought I was here just to go to church. No, you're not just here to go to church. You're here to bring the church to the world. Well, I thought I was here just to get healed because I got a lot of problems. You're not here just for that. You're here to get healed and go heal others. Well, I thought I was here just to learn about God. You're not just here to learn about God. You're here to learn and go teach others. Come on, a few moments right now. And baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Baptize us in fire. 
Let's pray this out. Baptize us. Let's sing it as a prayer. Because that's what we do with Jesus. We share him. We bring him to the world that's hurting. Few more times. Come on, baptize. Come on, get ready to get sent out here. Get ready to go for God. Few more times. Baptize us. Start with me, Jesus. Fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Fuego. Fuego. Fuego de Dios. Espíritu Santo. Make our lives, God, a pleasing aroma. My life for your glory, Jesus. One more time. Would you sing it out, saints? dismiss to leave here but never your presence would you bless us to be that blessing in the name of jesus we pray and everybody said amen can you bless him saints if you love him you are dismissed thank you for coming feel free to worship and pray with us